The Jewish views on remembering the French priest killed in a terrorist attack. We speak to a rabbi who was at a multi-faith vigil. Amy's place. Five years after Amy Winehouse's death, we hear about a new rehabilitation centre in her name. And price still includes biscuits. Naomi Paul talks about her forthcoming Fringe Festival show. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. Theresa May and Benjamin Netanyahu have discussed the global fight against terrorism and increasing bilateral cooperation between the UK and Israel in a wide variety of fields. It was their first conversation since Mrs May became Prime Minister more than three weeks ago. The Israeli leader posted on Twitter that he wished her luck as she begins her premiership. The full report by Baroness Royale into anti-Semitism in the Oxford Labour Club has shown there are examples of racism in the student society. The peer, who's been praised by community leaders for her efforts, wrote that it was clear to her from the number of witnessed allegations that there have been some incidents of anti-Semitic behaviour and that it would be appropriate for the Labour Party's disciplinary procedures to be invoked. No individuals were named. Rabbis have joined bishops and imams in a vigil at Westminster Cathedral, which was held for the murdered French priest Father Jacques Amel, who was killed in his church in Normandy by two Islamist terrorists last week. He was 85. The solemn service echoed those across France and Italy as religious leaders came together to condemn the atrocity. Rabbi Avraham Pinter and Rabbi Herschel Gluck stood shoulder to shoulder with Anglican, Catholic and Muslim leaders as they offered up prayers for the priest and other victims of Islamist violence in Nice, Paris and Baghdad. The Amy Winehouse Foundation has announced that a charity set up in the singer's name is opening a home in East London for women recovering from drug and alcohol addiction. It comes five years after Ms Winehouse's death from alcohol poisoning at the age of 27. The home will open its doors next month and women will be housed in one of 12 self-contained apartments and have access to activities such as yoga and Reiki. And finally, the former Israeli president Shimon Peres was interrupted during a speech he was giving to the Military Intelligence Research Division by soldiers coming on stage and singing Happy Birthday. Mr Peres has just turned 93. He was also presented with a cake with two candles on it in the shape of a nine and a three. And that's the news. Here's the sport now with Andrew Sherwood. Thanks, Viv. Ahead of the start of the Rio Olympics, the sports director of the Israeli Olympic delegation is hoping their largest ever Olympic squad can win the country's eighth medal in games history. Danny Oren says he's hoping the 47 athletes can win at least one medal and earn places in 10 finals. In football, Hapa El Besheva are one win away from securing their place in next season's Champions League after they beat Greek giants Olympiakos. Sheer Sedek's 79th minute strike earned the Israeli champions a 1-0 aggregate win and even if they lose their playoff tie, they're still guaranteed a place in the group stages of next season's Europa League. And finally, the team captain of Israel's first Commodore Cup team hailed his team's performance as a fantastic achievement. Claiming an overall 5th place finish at the prestigious event for amateur yachtsmen, Omer Brand said, With the right support behind us, the future can be very bright and the sky's the limit. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at www.jewishnews.co.uk. 
Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this week's edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me in the studio to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer. Welcome back, Rich, from Holiday. And also news editor Justin Cohen. I suppose, Justin, as ever, let's start off with the front page. Yeah, well, this is the never-ending saga, it would seem, of the Oxford University Labour Club and the allegations of anti-Semitism that surrounded it following the resignation of Alex Chalmers, the former co-chair. A subject that this this has now been the focus of two investigations, first by the Labour students and then by Baroness Royal, a senior Labour peer. Her report, if you remember, was suppressed. It was supposed to be, we expected it to be published in full some months ago. In the end, just the executive summary was published. And then we thought that that report was going to be subsumed by the Chakrabarti report, but Chakrabarti made no specific mention of the Labour Club. Now, uh, Baroness Royal has taken it upon herself, quite frustrated, it would seem, by Labour's actions. She's taken it upon herself to publish the whole thing. It confirms what we suspected was the case, what you know had been alleged, that there were examples of anti-Semitic behaviour. She isn't clear whether or not these were deliberate or born out of ignorance, really. And she also says that she isn't sure that in some of these cases there should be punitive measures, more educational measures might be more effective here. However, what was quite striking about this, and it is covered in our headline, is the fact that she said that she expects the results of this report, finally published, to be quite a disappointment, a great disappointment, as she says, to many people in the Jewish community. And that's our headline, that what a letdown, that after all these months, we've had basically confirmed what we believe to be the case all along. There were anti-Semitic incidents, and we still don't know what's happened to the perpetrators of them. But Rich, were we really expecting anything else? From the current Labour Party? Perhaps not. But what surprised me is uh, Baroness Royal, or or Jan, if she'll allow me, was obviously hired by the Labour Party. She's just emailed and said no, by the way. (laughs) And she must have gone into this with her eyes open. You know, she's a a long-serving, very, very experienced, over decades, member of the Labour Party and a very familiar, respected figure at Westminster. Would she not have at least had these kind of things down and agreements laid, laid down that she was going to be able to publish what she wanted, when she wanted, no matter what the findings were? It seems to me that her findings, and yes, they are a little toothless, were just an inconvenient truth to the Labour Party, and they weren't prepared to do anything other than stagger it and water it down and make it so that it didn't reflect badly on the party. Rather than being part of the solution, yet again, the Labour Party seems to be part of the problem. And yes, Baroness Royal was incredibly frustrated by this. I think the intransigence of the Labour Party is so frustrating and so suffocating to so many people. And the only person really that I think has come out of this with any credit whatsoever is Jan herself for for taking this action. Okay, well, this sort of all leads on one way or another, but... In terms of anti-Semitism and talking of anti-Semitism, the CST, Justin, have released their latest figures on anti-Semitism. What do they tell us? Yeah, so we've seen a, an 11% rise in incidents across the country in the first six months of this year compared to the first six months of last year, and in particular a 62% rise within London. A lot of this is accounted for by online anti-Semitism, which used to be not counted within the CST stats two or three years back, but now is very much a key part of that. And I think they've reported that 133 anti-Semitic incidents involve social media. So a significant number of the more than 550 incidents in total. 
I suppose as far as anti-Semitism goes, let's link this up slightly to the next story, which also features in the paper this week. And the NUS are in the news also this week, Justin. Why is that? Yeah, so we've got an exclusive opinion piece this week from one of the vice presidents of the NUS, Rob Young, one of the most senior people other than Malia Buatia within the national student movement. Uh, And he says that following recent controversies about a Jewish representative on the anti-racism committee of the NUS, that there have been attempts by members of the NUS National Executive Committee to sideline the UGS, to not work with that organisation as much as used to be the case. And he's saying he's going to fight that. But it's quite striking, having heard this kind of message from UJS, they're feeling that they were being sidelined from such a senior member within Malia's own team. And, and I think these, these comments have been quite widely picked up now by other outlets. And I think it underlines just how difficult the situation is at the moment for Jewish students on campus. He also says that by the very fact that so many Jewish students don't feel very welcome in NUS, in in student unions and in the student movement, that that union is failing, his own union is failing. Okay, well, moving on, in other news, Olympics imminently upon us and Munich is in the paper this week. That's right. 44 years now since the Munich massacre when 11 Israeli athletes and coaches were murdered by Palestinian terrorists during the Munich Olympics. And throughout this period, over the last couple of decades, a number of the widows of the athletes have been campaigning very hard for some kind of public acknowledgement tribute from the International Olympic Committee within the framework of the Olympic Games. They say that, you know, these athletes were part of the Olympic family. They were murdered as athletes in the Olympics within the Olympic Village. And you will remember four years ago in London, a campaign that attracted about 100,000 signatures for a minute silence at the opening ceremony failed to gain the result that it wanted. But now on Wednesday of this week, just before the Olympics actually kicked off, Thomas Bach, the new president of the IOC, led a minute silence, read out the names of the 11 athletes at a ceremony within the Olympic Village. And I had the opportunity actually to speak to Anki Spitzer, one of the widows, uh, literally minutes after that service finished. And she was extremely emotional, I have to say. She felt that after 44 years, they finally got what they wanted. Not quite what they wanted in that they hoped to have something at the opening ceremony so that everyone there could, could remember the athletes and make sure that it never happens again. But uh, they got a tribute, a very important tribute, a significant tribute. Uh, many people were in attendance, including members of the Palestinian delegation, I understand, and members of the Iraqi delegation, all standing in silence for the athletes. And this is a great moment. She, she felt in those minutes after the event that she'd finally achieved closure. Let's get a quick update in terms of the campaign Jewish News launched on the Hezbollah flag being flown around in London. Where are we at with that? Because I believe the campaign has gained a bit of momentum. Yeah, we've been working in connection with the Zionist Federation and clearly they've actually taken the lead on this, but we've been working hand in hand with them. The online campaign now I think is reaching 1,600 signatures. This is a campaign to ban terror flags from the streets of London. There was a pro-Palestinian or rather I should say anti-Israel march in the streets of London last month at it. The yellow flag of Hezbollah, the 
terrorist organization was proudly waived obviously that's a, a sickening sight for myself and, and all our readers I, and listeners I imagine we were calling on the Home Secretary now the Prime Minister of course but whether it's Amber Rudd or the Prime Minister herself to look into this and to ban this so that next year when this thing takes place we don't see terror flags on our doorstep let's wait and see what happens thank you both very much indeed that's all we've got time for for a look through the paper for this week don't forget that you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London or you can always read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk now towards the end of last month we learned the horrific news that a French priest was killed in a terror attack as he led mass father Jacques Hamel had his throat cut when two men stormed his church the murderers were shot by the police as they were heard shouting Alua Akbar. Well, a multi-faith vigil took place here in London to show solidarity for the slain priest. Amongst the rabbis, bishops and imams present was Rabbi Avram Pinter. I spoke to Rabbi Pinter and started by asking him to tell us why he felt it was important to be a part of the vigil. Well, I just felt that we've had an experience where within the Jewish community we've have been having to provide security and places of worship for some time as there had been many attacks on our community and we felt we needed to send in solidarity with other religions who were now undergoing those same tensions. Well speaking of other religions do you think now is maybe the time that they could turn to the Jewish community for advice, because obviously this is something that we've gone through for a great number of years, trying to protect ourselves against the threat of attack. Well, I'm, I'm sure that that's being done. And this, in fact, what happened some years ago when the Muslim community were under attack, there's a local group in Stamford Hill called Shomrim did provide advice and actually protection for the local mosque in those circumstances. The neighbourhood group Shomrim that you just mentioned surely must be on more alert than ever, especially after the stabbing in London this week that we learnt of, and obviously with the terror attack that happened to Father Jacques. So there must be a little bit of uncertainty amongst the community. Well, the Jewish community, sadly, this is no new phenomenon. This is, we've been on alert for a number of years now. And in fact, we're very thankful that the government has provided for us through the CSD funds for security. It would be very sad if we would be now in a period where we would have to provide that same sort of security for all faiths and all places of worship. Indeed, and I don't think there's many people listening who would disagree with that. I think that it's quite important to hear, well, I suppose your rabbinic interpretation, because there, there are people when they see attacks happen like this, rightly or wrongly, they question why would it be allowed to happen? And I know that there would be people who would take great comfort in knowing what your interpretation is of why we do have to witness the world in such a hideous way sometime. Well, another reason why we all came together, we wanted to give a very clear message and it was very important we had senior members of the Muslim community there as well, that violence has no place in religion at all. We're all religions of love 
and we were standing there together holding hands to show that this is we're there to spread love and violence has no place in in religion or in the place of worship and there was quite a poignant photo of all the religious leaders weren't there taken at the vigil where you identify that imams rabbis and bishops all came together all holding hands in westminster just tell us a bit about that what was the the feeling like there i should imagine it must have been very solemn very somber it was it was very solemn and very somber and sad however it was also a time of serenity when and happiness to show that all of us felt the same way and we shared the same common values there are very dark times in the world right now in everything that goes on around us appears to be quite trying to the mind in terms of trying to fathom why anyone could behave in the way that they do but how does one cling on to faith how are we supposed to believe that the world will improve and will get better well um, undoubtedly we all know that some people extremists are using faith to spread a, a political message which has got nothing to do with faith and i'm confident that the real love and the real reason of faith will overcome all these obstacles because faith actually leads me to love and i i cannot think for a moment how violence has any place in in religion or in faith it's it's a it's a total contradiction Rabbi Avram Pinter talking to me there about why he felt the need to take part in a vigil held in Westminster, London, to remember the late Father Jacques Hamel, who was murdered by terrorists last month. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition will be our Jewish schmooze. Today, Adam and I will be joined by actor and photographer Tony Honigberg and actress and comedian Tony Green. We will be discussing Jewish humour. Plus, we'll hear about Amy's Place from one of its founders, Dominic Ruffy. But first, the Edinburgh Fringe Festival is upon us once more. Various acts from all walks of life gather in Scotland's capital to entertain and to remind us how truly unique live performances of all kinds can be. Our next guest will be featuring there. Comedian Naomi Paul returns to the Fringe with her newly improved show, Price Still Includes Biscuits. Of course, last year it was Price Includes Biscuits. Harley Baptiste, our guest entertainment and culture reporter, has been speaking to her to find out more. He started by asking Naomi to give us an insight and what's different about this year's show. I was there last year. I'm coming back with a a revised version of of a show that got a four-star review. So I think when you come back a second time, there's a little bit of familiarity. It's a little bit less scary, perhaps. But the excitement doesn't change and and the uncertainties of what's going to happen don't change. I think it was was change around every corner. It's very, very varied. A slightly different show from the the terms of the, the actual name. It was Price Includes Biscuits. Now it's Price Still Includes Biscuits. 
So I can assume safely that we will be getting biscuits. You can assume safely that you will be getting biscuits. You Beautiful. can assume that the biscuits will be different biscuits from last year. <laughs> you can assume that the show has a mixture of politics, identity, migration. I've got little bits and pieces around what's happening at the moment. So it's topical without being completely specific. It's got a very universal kind of content, I think. Yeah, that's good. That's that's definitely kind of what we need right now, uh, a humorous insight into everything that's happening. So you clearly have an understanding of what to expect when performing at the Fringe. Does this sort of make it any more nerve-wracking? Does it give you any more courage? Yes, I think it gives you more courage because you know that however many people are in the audience, people worry if they may have a small audience or a large one. I think the point is that every show is important. It doesn't matter if you have three people or 13 or 30. You're performing to those people. I think it can give you courage if you've done it before because you have that experience in in, in your background and then you're you're prepared for anything that may happen as opposed to being particularly nervous if something unusual happens, like the sound goes or Mm. there's a technical hitch. You You can cope with those things well when things like that happens you just kind of got to roll with the punches in a way and just just keep going on with it and yes. fringe of course huge huge festival as i said before are you looking forward to anyone in particular that, that you might meet up with there that you might go and see well, there are lots of different people performing at the Fringe. Mm. Um, Ivor Dembina is there again. He had a wonderful show a couple of years ago called Old Jewish Jokes. There are quite a lot of people doing stuff about refugees. I've noticed a few people. There are shows called Borderlines, another, sh- another show called The Romanians Are Here. So I think there are quite a few people dealing with the topic of migration and emigration, which I do partly as well. I'm looking forward to going to the venue Summer Hall, which has a very interesting experimental theatre. And uh, I was also interested to know that Phil Hammond is here. He's the doctor turned stand-up and broadcaster, who you might know. So lots of different things, really. Yeah, that's that's the best thing about the Fringe. There's something there for everyone. So, if at all, how much of your Jewish background would you say that you managed to feature in your material? Well, I think the sort of identity of growing up in northwest London and in my case quite a lot of the rejection of that but I've surprised myself how much I now use it in the writing and the performing that I do so Mm. I'm always coming back to my identity and belonging not belonging looking from the outside looking from the inside out outside in yeah Uh, you know the whole question of migration now what it means then what it meant then, what it means now. So I think that whole question of identity and where you fit in threads through an awful lot of what I, what I do. And then I guess the other side is the style, in that I have quite a deadpan style. And I think some of that might be influenced by the kind of humour I might have grown up with or seen on, you know, seen on film or TV. Yeah. Well, dead, deadpan slash a bit of sarcasm, that's always the yeah. best way to get your point across, to get the joke across even as well. Yes, yes, very dry, yes, dry, sometimes a slow burn, you know, yeah. not, not, not necessarily a one-liner, um, but something that takes a bit longer to get to. So you could be telling joke number five and the audience, they'll still be thinking about joke number two and then suddenly, ah, we Let's get it. Let's hope so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, some of the stories I have are, are, are longish stories, so often yeah. the joke is, is later, if you like, or it's the kind of thing that makes you smile. You might not laugh out loud, but you, you have a kind of understanding of it. I think it's important when you're performing not to worry if people are quiet. You know, sometimes people think everyone should be laughing out loud all the time. I don't think that's right. Yeah. Um, you can sit and listen and be smiling inwardly or outwardly and be very, very entertained. But you're not necessarily um, laughing out loud, making a noise necessarily. 
audiences react very differently. You can have an audience of three who laugh a lot, yeah. an audience of 30 who are relatively quiet, but, but everyone's appreciation can be expressed very differently, I think. No, of course, yeah. So when you're performing on stage, do you sort of see it as yourself performing on stage to a number of people? Or do you kind of just see it as, I'm kind of having a, a conversation with people? Or how, how do you approach performing? I think I would say that I adopt a persona when I'm on stage. It's not stand-up as such. And even when people are doing stand-up, they often adopt a persona. So I am adopting a character. I take on different characters and different styles, I think, when I'm performing. I also do songs. Um, and the songs, obviously, you know, you, you're in a different space in a way when you sing. And I think I see the audience as as a whole. I mean, I talk to individuals at times in the show, and I classify it as comedy, theatre, cabaret. You know, it's on the border of all those things. So there are times when it's more theatrical, and there are other times when I am talking to the audience, and, and it's much closer to me having a conversation with somebody. Mm. Uh, but because you've got song, you've got story, and then you've got some interaction with the audience, you've got slightly different genres going on, I think, all the way through. People are going to keep engaged throughout, especially with all those different features you've got going on. Yes, yes. And they often don't know what's coming next, and they can be very surprised <laughs> by the next thing. Yeah. So sort of looking at years gone by uh, at festivals, and um, sometimes in particularly the French, but in general, there's always been a an element of hostility, let's say, towards Jews, in particularly over Israel. Have you ever had to experience this at a, uh, at a festival? And do you think this makes it harder for you? Do you get worried by this at all? Or? It's an interesting question. I haven't got worried about it, although people have talked to me about it. I know two years ago in Edinburgh, there was a lot of media coverage. I wasn't aware of it at the time, but I heard about it afterwards. Mm. I think the main thing that I would say is that I had, I had a line or two in my show about the Middle East. It was actually something that um, Shami Chakrabarti said in her report recently about how she said that in Britain, Jews and Muslims have a lot in common in that people expect them to comment when the outside world speaks on their behalf. Hmm. And that was the whole debate you might have heard about ISIS and Israel. She used the example, Israel may, may speak on behalf of Jewish people, does something that people disagree with. Other groups may do the same on behalf of Muslims. And I did have a, a very throwaway line about the Middle East which was to make the point about Jewish people always being asked an opinion on the Middle East and not necessarily being obliged to give it. Yeah. But it was quite a throwaway line, and it normally was very, very funny. But I decided not to use it when things in the Middle East got very difficult around Syria and then you know the more recent history as well. Mm. I just thought it was wrong. It worked at a time when the situation was less explosive, but yes. I didn't think it was right yeah. to keep it in. Yeah, no, that's understandable. Do you ever find yourself censoring yourself like that? Or is this sort of one of those occasions that's it's quite rare? No, I think that was the only time that's happened. There was another occasion when I was doing a stand-up gig some years ago now, and uh, there was actually some anti-Semitic jokes that were being read out as part of a joke competition, and quite the opposite on that occasion. I was going to do the Jewish material, and I decided to do it. And that actually challenged the material that had been coming out beforehand mm. and the audience clapped. So I think it can work both ways. You can challenge something that comes before rather than feeling that you should censor. But I, I deliberately don't deal with the Middle East. I feel quite strongly about the fact that I shouldn't have to. No, for sure. I don't, I don't think I'm obliged to. So I'm very careful because I don't want to really. I don't, it doesn't feel that's not what I want to do particularly. But in terms of racism and anti-Semitism, then yes, I would challenge that. And I wouldn't censor cool. material. 
Price still includes biscuits. Where can people go to get more information about it? So you can go onto the Edinburgh Fringe website, which is www.edfringe.com. The venue is called The Space at Surgeons Hall, which is on Nicholson Street. It's venue 53 in the Edinburgh Fringe brochure, and that's on Nicholson Street. And the show starts at 6.15, and it's 50 minutes long or thereabouts. It's on from August the 5th till the 27th, but not on Sundays. That's the day of rest. And the price is £8 and £5 concession. Comedian Naomi Paul talking to guest entertainment and culture reporter Harley Baptiste there about her newly improved show, Price Still Includes Biscuits, on at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival at various times until the 27th of August 2016. For more information, you can always go to naomipaulperformer.com. If you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can always contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish Views UK. Now, this week, we learnt that just over five years since her death, a new centre has opened in East London with thanks to the Amy Winehouse Foundation. The idea is to help women who have just finished rehabilitation for addiction to reintegrate into the wider world. To find out more about this remarkable place, I've been speaking to Dominic Ruffy from the Foundation, who was instrumental in setting up the new centre. I should point out at this stage, Dominic very kindly took time out from a very busy schedule to meet with me at a rather noisy King's Cross St Pancras station, so I do apologise for the background noise that you'll hear. All the same, I started by asking him how and why he was key to its launch. I've been in recovery for five and a half years and I went through three rehabs on that journey. And my experience was the first two times I went to rehab, I was in there for four weeks. I didn't really do a lot of work on myself. And I came out, went straight back to the circumstances I was living in, which was my own flat in my own area, but in amongst the same friends and people that I'd been using quite chaotically with. And I didn't, therefore, stand a very good chance of sustaining my recovery. The last time I went to treatment, I ended up in rehab for six months and in a recovery house for nine months. And my brother wrote me a very personal letter in there stating that they'd lived with me as an addict for over 8,200 days. And that I should bear that in mind when pondering how long I might need to spend in treatment. It was actually that letter that that drew me towards realising that A, I needed to spend my time in rehab working really hard to address my behaviours, but secondly, that I would need to move into some kind of supported housing afterwards to help me learn to re-engage with society and learn to live my life clean and sober without using any drugs or alcohol to to self-medicate. So, in other words, putting you in the perfect position to be able to relate to what potential beneficiaries of Amy's Place have gone through, perhaps are going through at the moment. Perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about the place itself. Amy's Place is the name. It is, yes. And what actually happens there? If someone was to go to that centre, what would they experience? Okay, so it's a self-contained block of apartments. Um, We've got 12 apartments there, of which four are two beds, so we can house up to 16 women. So when a woman initially comes to us, they'll engage with a a three-month 
therapeutic program that we've put in place, ranging from everything from holistic therapies through to relapse prevention, IT courses, literacy, whatever it might be. Some of it is determined by the women themselves, but the primary aim is to give them an element of structure in their initial period of time with us, and they can serve us for up to two years. Over the course of that two years, we then work with the ladies to help personalise their journey, for want of a better phrase. So if they want to engage in volunteering of a certain nature, we, we have those links in the community, likewise education, likewise employment. And our ultimate aim is that the ladies leave us in a position to manage their own private accommodation, sustain their tenancy, i.e. be financially manageable, and more importantly than all of that, sustain their own lifestyle without the need to use any substances or drink alcohol. So I guess the way that one could look at this from what I interpret is that it's kind of a a halfway house, if you will. So it's as soon as one has gone through rehabilitation processes, whichever path they choose to go down on that particular front, and then rather than just being, for want of a better phrase, turfed out into the cold, this is sort of to help them get back on their feet again. Is that the right way of looking at it? Absolutely. I think my own story is quite relevant here. So... I was very fortunate that I I had a very good education, came from a very nice family and worked in the city for 12 years. And yet when I left rehab the last time, I remember coming out of the doors and into the recovery house thinking, I have no idea what to do now. Because I knew I couldn't go back to the city because it was so part and parcel of my addiction. I needed that time in the recovery house to engage with volunteering and realise that I did have some transferable skills. Now compare that to somebody who, who say, has had no education, has come from a broken home, they're 25, 26 years old, they go through rehab, they get clean in there, but they come out the other side and they're kind of just left. Learning how to get clean doesn't, doesn't give you instant self-esteem, it doesn't make you full of confidence to turn up at college and, and feel that you're even worthy of a place there. And our aim at Amy's place is to build the ladies' self-esteem to a point where they feel they can engage with those opportunities. Is a lot of the problem that society still has this, if you will, stigma towards people who've gone through rehabilitation? Because if you take someone like Amy, for example, now obviously it's unbelievably just over five years since she left us, but at the time, pretty much right up until a few months before she did leave us, no one would really have ever known the suffering that she went through because she just put on such an incredible front, particularly yeah. as a performer. Yeah. Obviously, when she was on stage, yes, there were a couple of mishaps that made people question, oh, is she okay? You know, maybe is she unwell? They weren't quite sure what was going on. They knew something wasn't right, but all the same, she still persevered to some degree and turned up and performed. Yeah. So therefore, society had no reason to doubt that she was going through such troubles. Is that a major part of it? Does it make it a hundred times worse not having the awareness from people around you? Oh, absolutely. And as you say, there there is a stigma attached to addiction that it's an individual's own fault for being that way. My experience is that that is not the case. My mechanisms for coping with my emotional well-being were not working before I ever picked up a drink or a drug. It was only when I was 14 years old and I picked up a a joint as it was at the time and that gave me whatever it was I couldn't find within myself but I was I was almost destined to fall in love with those substances because they gave me that sense of security and sense of self to blame a child for decisions that he's made or she's made when in later life they're a full-blown addict I think is is fundamentally wrong is there anyone to blame though can I just I don't mean to be 
wrong when I say that, but you know how some people say, I blame the parents. Is there anyone to blame? No, I, I don't believe so. In certain instances, of course, some of them have come from a, a rather chaotic family and, and you could look at that and say, well, that's the problem. But actually in recovery, what, what we learn is that it's our responsibility to manage our own recovery. And within that, I can't afford to blame anybody else. And I don't blame myself either. I just accept that I am an addict and that I have to do certain things to maintain my sobriety. If I was busy blaming other people, and I did when I was out there drinking and, and, and using as I was, I did blame other aspects of my life for my addiction. So my father passed away when I was young and, and that was the, the, what we call an enabling belief. So that enabled me to continue using drugs constantly because nobody knew how I felt really. And if you felt like I did, you'd take all the drugs I didn't. That's rubbish. At the end of the day, it, it's, it's my own responsibility to accept that actually I can't use drink or drugs successfully. I can't just have one pint. I'll never be able to just have one pint. So therefore, having had the, the chance in rehab to be brought to a place where I'm empowered to make a choice, it's my responsibility to learn how to always make the right choice for the rest of my life. And I do that one day at a time. So we say it's a daily program, if you like. So rather than thinking I'm going to spend the rest of my life not drinking, I just think all I've got to do is get my head on the pillow tonight without using a drug or, or, or drinking a drink and it's been a successful day. Wow. Well, getting back to Amy's place, yeah. just a couple of pointers about that. You've mentioned, and I've mentioned as well earlier on in the program, that it is specifically for women. Yes. What was the reason behind that? Okay, so there are in London around about 30 recovery houses. There's only one all-female unit. And we did some consultation with women in rehab around what they would describe as their ideal recovery environment. And to a lady, they all said a women-only unit because alongside their addictions there were issues such as codependency upon men abusive backgrounds and generally they would feel safer if they were in an all-female environment as opposed to an environment where they may choose to get into a relationship because it helps them avoid looking at aspects of their life they don't want to look at it's, it's very easy to to avoid doing the work on yourself by fixing on something and for men and women, that, that can be each other. Yeah, sure. So codependency can almost hinder the recovery. Completely, yeah, absolutely. And then as far as moving forward is concerned, you obviously were instrumental in getting it off the ground, but yeah. then what happens now moving forward? How involved are you going to be in terms of its running? Because it's based in East London. Yeah. You're based out of London. So yeah. how involved are you going to be? Okay, so I'm based out of London, but I'm here Monday to Thursday. The relationship we have with, with Circle 33, the housing association we're in partnership with, is that of a partnership. So we've been involved in the recruitment process of the staff and we will continue to be involved in the evolution of the house and making sure that the the model within the house is led by the women in the house so rather than us telling them what to do we want to work with them to find out what it is they want to do and then provide whatever they may need to help them achieve whatever they want to achieve just finally there may be people listening to this who have related to an awful lot of what you've said they are probably more towards the start of their journey and they don't know where to turn and what to do. Yeah. What would you advise them to do? Depending where they're at, if they're at currently out there and they know they've got a problem, the first thing to do is, is to go on a local authority website and find out who your local drug and alcohol treatment provider is and they'll be able to engage with you and, and get you onto some element of a program. If they have recently exited rehab and are, are find themselves isolated and, and alone, my suggestion would be to to get some mutual aid meetings so that can encompass anything from 
NA or AA through to things like smart recovery and other mutual aid meetings. So the whole premise of a mutual aid meeting is one addict can best understand and help another addict because we can identify with how we feel, we can identify with, with the kind of struggles that we're going to face and it sounds flimsy but in fact just talking about that with somebody else who understands takes a lot of that away. It eases the burden, you know you're not alone and yeah. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join us to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. Clive Roslin is taking a very well-deserved week off, as is Kate and Diana, by the way, for anyone wondering where they are. But fear not, they will all return next week when it will be my turn to have a week off. Anyway, I digress. Joining Adam Bradley and me today is actor and photographer Tony Honigberg and actress and comedian Tony Green. Two Tonys. This could get very interesting. <laughs> this is going to be very good. <laughs> Bearing in mind how heavy the news and indeed the subsequent schmoozes have been over the past few weeks, we thought that we'd have a more relaxed one today. So with that in mind, the subject has been inspired by Naomi Paul, who you heard a little earlier on talking to guest entertainment and culture reporter Harley Baptiste. Now, we thought that we would explore and discuss Jewish humour because, after all, there is rather a lot of it out there. So, Tony Honigberg, let us start with you. What do you think makes for a good bit of Jewish humour? And also, what Jewishisms, if I can call it that, make mm. you laugh? Jewish humour, I, 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 what makes Jewish humour? I think Jews themselves make Jewish humour. We, unlike a lot of other religions, we laugh at ourselves, we laugh at our peculiarities. I, I was recently in Venice and, and we bought a little picture of some gondolas going down a canal and on every gondola there was a sukkah. And, and Hasids and, uh, and, and another. I mean, it's brilliant, isn't Love it? it? You're laughing at yourselves. Another picture had. Are you absolutely sure they were suckers and not just shelters? No, no, definitely, definitely a sucker. <laughs> On another picture, there was a Hanukkah with all the all the candles lit, and it was going under a wooden bridge. You know, this big Hanukkah setting light to the bridge. And we we laugh at ourselves, and I think that is what Jewish humour is all about. I don't think it's the it's the type of joke that you say. I think it's just having that ability to laugh at yourselves. Lots of other religions don't, as we well know. Ah, but I wonder, Tony Green, would we be laughing if we thought for a second that they were designed by someone who wasn't Jewish? No, that's interesting point, actually, because I know that I can hear a Jewish joke that might even be a bit deprecating by somebody Jewish, but actually if somebody who's not Jewish makes a joke in that way, I don't like it. I really think it's true. And there are little sort of anti-Semitic things you find. Like I was, it was years ago now, but I was in a greengrocer. And because living on my own, I wanted to buy one baked potato, one. So I went into the shop and I said, I want one baked potato. And the greengrocer said, I don't sell them in ones. And I thought, oh, charming. And a friend of mine said, laughing, oh, I can tell you're Jewish, can't you? Uh, and, and I really sort of didn't like that. Do you know what I mean? It was, and I, I assume your friend wasn't Jewish, you said that. Yeah. Goodness, yeah, that. yeah that, it becomes a little bit tasteless that way. Yeah. I don't yeah. know about the baked potato, but the, <laughs> <laughs> the I mean, a part of me thinks it serves you right for trying to buy one baked potato, well, but the <laughs> other part of me, Adam, well, sorry. I, yeah, <laughs> I, I think you're right. There is a lot of Jewish humour based on self-deprecation. It really is. And it's through suffering, oppression that we've had over the past. And, and you know, like a lot of communities, races, whatever, you have to laugh at that to a degree. What I'm not so keen on is in the last... Oh, it's probably 10, 20 years, there's been a move towards Jews 
self-deprecating themselves in humour, but at a bit of a... I'll give you an example. When we talk about people not being able to do DIY and the people, you know, the Jewish joke that, oh, what, you know, um, a Jewish DIY kit is a knife and a high heel to hammer in. (laughs) No, it's quite amusing. I thought it was a telephone person. (laughs) But it's quite amusing. But I I actually, I don't like that kind of humour anymore. It's all as if we're so comfortable now and we're so, you know, people are fairly affluent, people are in middle class communities that we're almost joking that, oh, we don't do that kind of thing anymore. And that kind of humour I've noticed is creeping in a bit and, but, I like that, it. but that's left over from the past where, where actually Jewish people were not really that good at manual labour. You know? But they were, that's my point. I would say, though, that it really does boil down to how clever a joke is. And I'm not necessarily that fussed if a joke is told by someone who is Jewish, Jewish. or not. Because to me, I think that, for example, if I give you one of my personal favourite jokes, technically, which could be deemed anti-Semitic, and it was actually the late and very great Ronnie Corbett who said this once in one of his famous monologues that he used to do in his armchair for the two Ronnies. And he said that it was rumoured to be the end of the world, and all the different faiths were celebrating and marking this in the way that they knew how. The Catholic faith were having final confessions. The church of England were having last Holy Communion so that as they transcended into the next world, they would have the body and the blood of Christ within them. And the local synagogue was having a closing down sale. <laughs> you see, to me, I think that's genius. Actually, no, I, I think agree. that's very that clever very funny. and very funny. And it didn't offend me mm. that Ronnie Corbett, who obviously wasn't Jewish, said it. I no. think the difference is, though, you know when a Jew tells a joke about Jews, you, you know it's not malicious. It's when a non-Jew tells a joke about Jews, or when anyone tells a joke about another race, it's that someone like Ronnie Corbett. You know, that's not malice there. Yeah, no, he's he just so a comedian, lovely, yeah. and it's a great story. But yeah. so are other comedians just a comedian, and I think that's where the lines really get very blurred. It's quite hard for us as a community, I see anyway, that we can just cut off and say it was a joke. It was meant to be funny. Don't take it personally. Well, I, I think also you can tell from the comedian. You, you know which comedian yeah. is going to tell, yeah. tell a joke and which comedian is going to be offensive. But we are quite a funny people generally, don't you think? I what, mean, Jewish people? Absolutely. Oh. I mean, Tony, let's funny Tony Green peculiar. this is, I should say. <laughs> Tony Green, you've obviously created and are known for the character Sadie Goldberg. Already. Who, of course, already. <laughs> who is your, your typical Jewish mama yeah. and she is hysterical. But she's hysterical because she's Jewish. And there's no other real explanation for it, is there, really? No, I suppose so. I mean, she is completely over the top. And she does have a lot of the cliches, you know, of the Jewish thing, which is like, you know, the unmarried children, oy vey, you know, the too much food. She's gone a little bit blue. It hasn't been intentional, but she... Not on this programme, No, no, I won't. won't. I promise. Don't worry. <laughs> but I, I wrote a few lines in it and I thought, well, I don't know if I can get away with this. And I, I said the lines to a friend and I said, what do you think? She, because she doesn't know what she's saying, you can. You can get away with it but there's also I was trying to think before I was coming on what is it about Jewish humour and the people I like people like Woody Allen I mean it's also the neurosis it is you know I mean we cannot deny that neurosis is a trait of many Jewish I mean I you know I'm I'm getting better at it but I have a hugely neurotic trait and I think a lot of Jewish people too and we can laugh at that see that's the point it's stereotypes come from somewhere they're not just made up and that's what humour is playing on stereotypes 
stereotypes. And yeah. when we play on our own stereotypes... It you makes know, you laugh. It, it well, it's does, funny. Really it, it, it is funny, isn't it? The, the, the stereotype Jew is actually really funny. Yeah. Mm. yeah. yeah. Whether, whether Especially is, the whether, Jewish mother. She's whether it's a Hasid or a Jewish mother. Yeah. Or, you know. It reminded me, Sadie Kolberg always reminds me of that joke <laughs> of, um, when the, the Jewish mother's walking down the street and she sees this homeless man. This homeless man looks up and says, Lady, I haven't eaten for three days. To which she says, So force yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that joke. No, it's it's. But the weird thing is that sometimes when I've done, I did it once for a Jewish audience. I'd just done my first ever paid gig in Newcastle, you know, and it was a bunch of Newcastle people, and it brought the house down. And then I did a gig at quite a fancy club, and it was a Jewish, an evening of Jewish Christmas shows. So I thought oh, I'll be all right Go here. Figure. <laughs> Go figure. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> and the compound went out and he said, hands up who's Jewish. And you heard like 120 people go, yeah, yeah. I thought oh, I'll be fine here. And I went out and I said the first line. And you can always tell when you're a comedian. Right. I thought, uh oh, nothing. Second line, nothing. And it was one of those comedians nightmares oh, where That's... I got barely a titter. And it was a Jewish audience. So I don't know if they were offended or the other comedians were all quite, they were all Jewish, but they were all quite cutting edge. Right. So maybe they just prefer that kind of thing. Were, I they, don't know. were they embarrassed, do you think? I don't know. I mean, the other comedians were making jokes. It was at the time of like about Madeleine McCann and things oh, like that, which I, which I found really offensive. Yeah, well, I was going to say, I mean, I, I think that irrespective of religion, one can say that there's got to be a limit in terms of what someone can laugh at and what they can't laugh yeah, at. And exactly. I would like to think that a story such as that would not be appropriate. Well, Jewish humour is very traditional. And I think that's what we love about it. It's, mm. it, it's warm. It's familiar. You it's know, fa it's family lot, and food, isn't it? Certainly a lot yeah. of modern comedy is very... You know this this cutting edge, and it's very close to the bone. And, yeah, and you know what? That's that's not us as a and, community. And some of it isn't funny, actually. Some of that modern yeah. humour doesn't strike me as no, funny. not no, it really isn't. Yeah, some of it's not. As far as modern comedy is concerned, I would say that to me, I think what people try and get the biggest laugh out of now, which really, really gets me, I can't stand, is that they throw in the occasional expletive. Mm. Knew and I, say that. But yeah. the problem is is because that's the shock factor and what a lot of modern comedians don't get is that I believe anyway, one <laughs> is laughing at the sheer the shock, <gasps> shock, of shock of, yeah. and it's almost out of nerves yeah. that one is laughing at an expletive to me the mark of someone who is truly funny is someone who can make someone laugh and they don't have to resort to swearing well, and that's exactly. why that's why Jewish humour is really such a tonic can, can and, you, at its best can, it's brilliant can you swear in Yiddish though in doing Jewish jokes I have absolutely no idea because I don't know I don't any know. expletives in I Yiddish. I don't no. but, I, but it's really true what you say because when I used to do sort of a lot of gigs, you know, in pubs and everything, and there'd be a lot of comedians who'd get up and every other word was words I can't say now. And I actually found it quite lazy writing and boring. Yeah, it is And then lazy. I'd get up talking about Brink Cross Shopping Centre and you'd think, <laughs> what are they going to think? You know? But some of them loved it, some of them didn't. But you're you're it, right you, about the laziness in the writing. They're, they're not... They're not making any effort to be funny. Well, mm. I've always equated comedy with intelligence. People that are funny are generally mm. intelligent because it is clever, and that's what makes you laugh. The fact that it's it's a clever play on words, or it's a little you weren't expecting that. Yes. And, mm. and and a lot of comedians nowadays aren't that clever, in the sense that it, it's not this intelligent wit. Whereas you look at some of the great comedians, and they're 
bright, bright people. Mm. Really smart. Well, even go, even going back to the great, uh, the American Jewish comedians were, were absolutely brilliant, weren't they? George Burns. Yeah, yeah. we've got to say him. Yeah, Jackie Mason. Jackie Mason. Jackie Mason. I was just about to say Again, genius, you know, absolute yeah. genius. It's everything he says. It is. And also, I mean, for someone like Jackie Mason, who I have to show off and say I have had the huge honour and privilege of meeting and interviewing. Wow. He's just a funny person. And I don't mean that in funny strange. I mean, literally funny. Ha ha. When you meet him, he never turns off. He's always amusing because I can tell you that when the microphones weren't on, he did have his comedy front mm. on him as it were he was trying to be funny trying to be amusing don't ask me what he said because i can't remember but that's more unfortunately my problem rather than his and i just think that that is the mark of someone who is truly funny and i also think as far as modern comedians is concerned what you were saying adam about intelligent wit a lot of the time now we mistake intelligent wit for funny mannerisms mm. and unfortunately that is the sign of 21st century comedians and that's where the problem lies but also Tony what you were saying Tony Green that is what you were saying before about Brent Cross it always reminds me of that age old Jewish joke that when I die I'm going to be cremated and have my ashes scattered in Brent Cross that way the children will still come and visit me <laughs> and it's true I mean Ooh, like, can, I, you, can I pinch that so you <laughs> certainly can it's, I cannot take credit for that one that's a very old one but I do think that Jewish jokes as a whole are just clever and just seriously amusing because it is so true and we can all relate to it that's yeah. what makes some us weird laugh. way yeah. when we actually feel yeah I do that or I know someone well, that's like right. that yes yeah. exactly, exactly. It, re- it relates to you personally doesn't it that's why I like you can just see you can see yourself in Jewish humour can't you, you? Can, it's yeah. like that and you've probably all heard it the one about the barber a, a priest walks into a barber's shop and he says can I have a haircut so he cuts his hair and he says how much and he says no a spiritual man like yourself a religious man is free so the next day, the barber turns up to his barber shop in the morning, and there on the front step, seven rubies. And he thinks, wow, what an, what an amazing guy. Thank you. So anyway, he goes into his shop, and later on in that day, a Muslim cleric walks in, goes up and gets his hair cut. He says, how much is that? He says, no, spiritual man like you, a man of God, I will not charge you. It's free for you. He says, thank you very much. Next morning, barber arrives at his shop, seven sapphires. It's incredible. So anyway, later on that day, a rabbi walks in, Cuts his hair. The rabbi says, how much do I owe you? He says, no, spiritual man like yourself, I'm not going to charge you. Next day, he arrives at his barber's shop, seven rabbis on his doorstep. (laughs) 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 I mean, but that's so possible, as well. You can see that happening. It's good I never, weirdly, even though I do comedy, I never remember jokes as such. It's strange. I must try and remember some of these. Oh, it's frustrating. But you don't yeah. tell jokes yeah. in your act? So you Not really. It's more a, a sort of a, a story of my person. family. And I mean, I put odd jokes in as well. But it's more yeah. a monologue in a way. But I guess you can actually really go quite deeper into the sort of cultural side. Oh, and totally. The psyche of the Jewish... Totally. And mannerisms. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, in fact, when I used to have a stand-up teacher, he said that it was funniest when I made it bigger. And I'm afraid on that line, it's funnier when you make it bigger, is when we have to end it. <laughs> but thank you very much indeed to our guest, Tony Honigberg and the rather smarty Tony Green. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish views UK. 
Well, what would Rabbi Barden say? It's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week, and this time it does come from Rabbi James Barden from Sharite Sedek, North London Reform Synagogue. I last had occasion to write one of these reflections back on the 23rd of June. It hasn't as yet become a fixed marker in people's minds the way that other dates have, usually associated with what people call seismic shifts, but I think it may. The day of the referendum. Looking back, I recall that two things were on my mind. As the referendum approached, one was the importance which Jewish ethics attach to avoiding Lashon Hora, Lashon Hara, evil speech, gossip, damaging talk about other people, plus, alongside that, the idea that migration, rather than being a huge problem of our times, is more a simple fact, a characteristic of the everyday human world. Since then, things have moved on. A bit. And many would say for the worse. As we all know, a narrow majority of voters back on the 23rd of June took the view that it would be best for the UK to leave the European Union. And a very similar number, somewhat smaller, took the opposite view, voting to remain in the EU. In the aftermath, guarding against Lashon Hora, abusive, disparaging language, is as vital as ever. Likewise, trying not to see migration as a daunting problem, but rather as a key characteristic of global social reality, might be a good way to face the future. That future increasingly looks like an erupting landscape of conflict, division, and uncertainty. We have little choice but to take a deep breath and try to accept that this is how things are. Indeed, here in the UK, mainly due to the workings of democracy, that is, that referendum back on the 23rd of June, we cannot impose certainty and clarity where they simply do not prevail. More to the point, we can neither ignore the referendum result nor rush ahead with Britain's exit from the EU. In fact, one thing is clear. Britain is a divided country. 17 million voted for Brexit. 16 million voted to remain in the EU. In the light of that certainty, we absolutely do not need to plunge headlong into deeper and more intense turmoil. The referendum recorded the stark fact of disagreement and division. It may still be too early to identify possibilities of compromise, creating agreement and concord where nothing of the sort seems to exist. Perhaps we simply need to persevere, take stock, act judiciously, listen to one another, formulate new questions and answers, think outside of the box, and wait. For three years, we read in the Talmud, Tractate Eruvin, there was a disagreement between the schools of Hillel and Shammai, each saying, the law is in accord with our view. Then a heavenly voice came forth and said, these and these are the words of the living God, Contradictory claims, opposing visions, conflicting aspirations. We have to accept them. On both sides, there are ideas and concerns which are valid, well-argued, convincing, sincerely held. Now, since the 23rd of June, we have to learn to live with disagreement and division. Or more importantly, we have to help one another to live with these, yes, unpleasant, challenging facts of life. And find a way forward, let us hope together. 
Thank you to Rabbi James Barden from Sharai Tzedek, North London Reform Synagogue, with our Thought for the Week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Rabbi Avron Pinter, Naomi Paul, Dominic Ruffy. Thanks also to the Schmooze team, Tony Honigberg and Tony Green. And of course, thank you to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget to thank the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always download the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk, and you can search for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.